Our passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 24. That should be page 962, if you'd like to follow along with the Bibles there in your seats. We have come now to the last passage in our series on uh, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians. It's been a wonderful uh, series of months together, and we're preparing to go into the book of Malachi next week. But let's attend to the final words. What does Paul led by the Spirit of God, want to leave with the church this morning, to leave with us this morning. Will the Spirit help us to attend now to the Word of God? 1 Corinthians 16, 13-24 Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus, and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send your, you greeting. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray now together. Lord, we have heard your word read aloud. We seek now to study it, laying it up in our hearts that you by your spirit would give us understanding, convicting and empowering, encouraging and equipping us as the church together. Help me to speak the truth of your word for the building up of your people unto your glory. Okay. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. A few years ago when Rebecca and I were still in Iowa, well, no, it was actually here. But a few years ago, we got to uh, see one of our favorite comedians uh, in person, Brian Regan. And he's just so very relatable. And one of his favorite skits or jokes is about a time when he went to the airport and needed a, a ride in a taxi. And so that he's been chatting with the taxi driver. They arrive, the door opens, he gets out to go catch his flight. And the driver says to him, have a great flight. And he turns to the driver and says, you too. It's just so ingrained, right? Someone says something nice to you, we want to respond in kind. And it's relatable to me because... I found myself doing something similar. Most of the time when I'm on the phone for any length of time, uh, it's usually a family member or a close friend that I'm speaking to. And it's normally uh, for, normal for us to say at the end of that, okay, I love you, goodbye. Okay. And there have been a few occasions, fortunately not with a customer service rep with whom I've been impatient, but there have been a few occasions when a friend who was not necessarily a close friend, but nonetheless a friend, was on the receiving end of an unexpected, okay, I love you, goodbye. 
Paul is in the habit of ending his letters with love and blessing. But it is not a gut response. It is not a knee-jerk action. It is an intended desire of his pastoral heart to leave the congregation of Corinth. At the end of this letter, where he's provided a lot of instruction, a lot of correction and challenge, to leave them with love. Telling them of his love. Asking that all that they would do, that would be done in love. Even telling them to greet one another with holy kisses. He does so because love has been at the heart of this letter. As they've struggled with division and pride, he has drawn them to the love of Christ. He's told them that for all the good that their spiritual gifts do them, they're empty if they not, don't have love. And the result of that is we have the beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 13 about what love is. And so even as he prepares to close, he says, let all that you do be done in love. This echoes what most scholars believe to be the central thesis of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. So even now, Paul is trying to leave them with love, that they might live in unity under Christ together. So he commands them to let all that you do be done in love. It is a high calling. Even when we are experiencing the same divisions, challenges, and sin patterns of Corinth, it is a high calling. But Paul doesn't leave them with just a command to love. Not just one final shot across the bow. Even in the exchange of the greetings... The last instructions and warnings, he is providing them with help to love in the way that he's calling them to. If we are to be a church that reflects the unity that Paul desires for Corinth, the unity that Christ gives us in our one baptism and one spirit, how can we love? We can fulfill that call to love that God gives us as we are grounded in the love of Christ as we are guided by the love of Christ, and as we practice the giving of the love of Christ. In order for the Corinthians to be lovers of one another, Paul instructs them to be grounded in love. Notice that before he gets to the instruction, the command of verse 14, let all that you do be done in love, there is a staccato burst of these other instructions and commands. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And with the exception of stand firm in the faith, those are all one-word commands. And so they come rapid fire at the Corinthians. They serve to set up the more extended reflective command of having them do all that they do in love. Paul is giving them these commands as prerequisites, as preparations for the work of loving one another. Paul gives them these commands to help them be grounded in the truth of the gospel, the love of Christ, in order to be a church united in love. What do these words evoke for them? 
They are just one-word commands for the most part, but these are frequently used commands throughout Paul's letters and in other New Testament uh, writings that we have. So when he says, be watchful, that word is translated in other places, stay awake, and is used in the context of walking in righteousness with the expectation of the return of Christ. Christ is coming. Are you preparing for that in the way that you live? Throughout Scripture, we have the command to stand firm, and not just to stand firm, but to stand firm in faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for them, in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, to remain steadfast, to act like men, or as the NIV translates this, to be courageous. In the face of opposition and enemies that seem so big and so strong, God encourages his people to trust in him and his provision in the face of danger. And to find the strength for that, to be strong, not in and of themselves, but as Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord. Or earlier in that letter, that his desire for the Ephesians is that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. All of these commands to stay tough, to be courageous, to be strong, are about finding their grounding, and their foundation, their support in the gospel that he has been preaching to them throughout this letter to the truth of what Jesus has done for them in opposition to the temptations and the invitations from the world around them. Even in the language he chooses, there is a challenge against the temptation to walk in other ways. There's something kind of startling at the end of the passage. As he comes to the end of his letter, He can't help bursting out in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Where does that come from? Why would Paul write that at the very end of the letter? Because he knows, as he's been writing to them, as he's been praying for them, as he's been ministering to them, that for all of their zeal for spiritual enlightenment, of being a spiritual people, of being in the know of spiritual things, they are tempted to lose the forest for the trees, boasting in themselves, boasting in their spiritual gifts, rather than boasting in Christ. Loving what He gives them in the Spirit, what is helpful to them without loving Him. If they are to love one another, they need to be strong and courageous, to be watchful, standing firm in the faith, according to the love of Christ. Paul confronts them with this, with, with this language, and for us perhaps this morning, when he says, play the part or be the man. Act like men. Now that's just an idiom. It's a direct translation of what the Greek language for the Romans would have stood in for, be courageous. And I think the NIV is fine in translating that, be courageous. But when we confront those words, as Paul uses that idiom, it is a confrontation with how the Corinthians have viewed what it is to be a strong and successful and courageous man. To be strong as a Corinthian, as a Roman citizen, was to be a man of power, 
a man of position, to not only have influence, but to declare your influence, boasting of it throughout the community with signs and plaques to your glory, to build up your prominence through financial gain, using networks of the powerful and the well-connected to further your own status. And Paul's seen that at play in the church. They're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, because they want spiritual prominence. They go around boasting of their spiritual gifts, that go, go to these meals of sacrifice to idols and even demons because it helps them stay well-connected to the well-connected in Corinth. Even as they eat gluttonously and get drunk while fellow believers go hungry and thirsty. Paul says to be courageous to be lovers, you must love Christ, who is powerful, who is an example, who is a courageous according not to the standards of what a Roman says is a man, but according to the standards of the one who healed the sick, who freed those oppressed spiritually and bodily, who spent time with sinners, and who did the most unimaginable thing, both to Jews and Gentiles alike, willfully submitted to death on the cross. You cannot despise. You cannot have a lack of love for Jesus according to what he did for you and then claim to be in a position to love one another. If we are to do all that we do out of love, we must be grounded in the love of Christ. Not just the idea of it, but in what he has actually given to us. Though it is a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. In Jesus, we find the ultimate display of loving courage, of strength and power. So they need to stand firm in the gospel, loving the Lord, because we love, because He first loved us. And so this morning, we need to ask, what defines love for us? Is it what feels good at the moment, or is it defined by God, such as we see in chapter 13? Is it according to the display of what we have seen manifest in the life of Christ? Is our capacity and the direction and the definition of love grounded in Jesus, what he has done for us, what he tells us to do? And even when we are weak, are we coming back to him for the strength and power to love others? What is the supply for that love? To remain awake in love when we would rather rest or give up or give in or back down in the face of opposition. That's a real possibility when the strength to love comes from within or only to the extent in which we're loving when it is approved by others around us. But are we loving until we are sinned against and stopping then? Are we only loving the type of people that are like us or help our position are we loving what the world offers instead of what Christ offers eternally? Someone uses the illustration of a tree planted by streams of water, which is strong, which is nourished, fruitful in and out of season. So like that tree, 
Like the man nourished by the word of God, so our love must be nourished by being grounded in the love of Christ. Defined by how Christ loved us. So if you're tired of loving, if you're only doing some things out of love for others, then I invite you this morning to drink deeply of the love of Christ. Stand firm in what he has done for you, what he has said about you, of the value you have in his eyes so that you can love others. Nourished in the love of Christ, we still are sometimes distracted or confused or wayward about how to reflect that love. And so as Paul's desire is that the church lives in unity and love as a result of the gospel, he also invites them to be guided by love. In verse 15 through 18, Paul begins talking about this visit from Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. It's most likely that the letter that Paul is responding to with this letter was delivered by Stephanus. And the indication is because there is a household that's mentioned that he probably has a little bit of wealth and he might have even been in Ephesus on business and that was used as the occasion for him to deliver the letter. But more than acknowledging the delivery of the letter and this group that came to visit Paul, Paul is availing himself of the opportunity to call the Corinthians to look at these three men as examples, as guides, as leaders. Verse 16, To such as these be subject to such as these. Then in verse 17, he says of them, to give recognition. Give recognition to such people. Give Stephanus, give Fortunatus, give Achaicus, and others like them, fellow workers and laborers, submit to them and give them recognition and esteem. What types of people are we called, are the Corinthians called, to put ourselves under? To say, I want to learn from him or her. I want to go where they are leading Paul draws attention to servants. Paul says of them, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That is, they embraced the gospel that Paul originally preached to them and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. These are devoted servants. Paul says, place yourselves under those who place themselves under others. In love. These were the first to embrace the gospel, and as they understood Christ crucified for their sins, as they understood Christ bodily risen in anticipation of their own resurrection, their reception of that good news led them to be servants like Jesus. While the Corinthians are divided into picking for themselves who they want to follow, they're trying to choose from the prominent like Peter, the eloquent like Apollos, the powerful in the spirit like Paul. Paul says, put yourself under such as these. These men who are examples of what it is to embrace the good news of Jesus and respond with loving service to one another, not building up their own reputations. Though it seems that Stephanus probably has some authority and power and wealth, 
It is not that that Paul draws attention to. It is his service in response to the gospel. Oftentimes our test of whether or not we've really embraced the gospel is the types of people we look up to. We might be tempted to look to wealthy gurus, powerful political figures, moms and dads who seem like they have it all together with perfectly obedient kids and pristine households. In the church, we are tempted to place ourselves under to give recognition to charismatic communicators or the theologically astute. Often these people are the people we want to follow that we are willing to listen to because they're the people that we want to be. God speaking through his servant, Paul says, these are not who you want to be like. You want to be like Christ who came as a servant. So look to other examples of loving service. Our Savior was the ultimate example who fed the hungry, who liberated the oppressed, who washed the dirty, stinking feet of his disciples and then died for them, including the ones that would deny him and rebel against him. If we are to do everything in love, like the love of Christ, it helps to put before ourselves people who reflect that love in their own practice, in their own walk. And this may mean looking to those we wouldn't expect to look to, Like I said, Stephanus is likely to have some financial means. He has a household. That probably means he has servants and slaves. He probably has some wealth, a house in which people could gather. But it seems from the context that Fortunatus and Achaicus are part of that household, that they're likely part of that household who was among the first to believe, which would make sense as to why these two men are accompanying this brother on his journey. We don't know for sure, but most likely, these two men are either slaves or those who were slaves who have become freedmen. Fortunatus means fortunate. Achaicus means one from Achaia. These are the types of names that slaves would receive or take to themselves. In the Roman context, in the Corinthian context, these are not men you look up to. These are men you look down upon. You avoid. Paul is telling the church in Corinth that those that display the love of Christ in love for others, whether powerful and rich, whether slaves and outcasts, these should be the leaders. These are those that should be honored among the church. I can still... 30 years later, remember the poster at the end of the food line in my cafeteria. Now you go, and as you go to collect your milk and look down at the food options for that day was a life-size poster of the Iron Man himself, Cal Ripken Jr., with a milk mustache across his upper lip. Got milk? Do you remember that advertising initiative? Who was on those posters? Athletes like Cal Ripken Jr., models, celebrities, actors, the rich 
and the wealthy and the powerful. Because, of course, those who supported this initiative said, we want people to buy and drink more milk, so who do we want to put before them? The rich and the powerful and the attractive. Be like these. Look up to such as these by drinking more milk. Even as the milk that we were drinking in the cafeteria was subpar, sugared up, 1% milk robbed of all its nutritional value. But that's another comment for another day. We are tempted to make such men and women the guides for our life. But Jesus warned, the first shall be last and promised that the last shall be first. The example Jesus put before us as a servant calls us to follow those that exemplify Jesus' love. Not because they're stronger, not because they're greater, but because they are dependent on the love of God, setting aside the offerings of the world of prominence, of power, and position, instead to depend on the love of God in that service. And so I ask you this morning, who is discipling you? Someone is. Something is, whether intentionally and overtly or not, we are all being discipled. The question is, will we go along with the implicit discipleship of the strong or the loving servant? Of the loud or the loving? If we are to be a loving church, we must be led by those who love. We must put before ourselves those who love. We must place ourselves under Those who love. Those who love the Lord are earnestly awaiting his return. They are loving others the way he loved us, for they show us the call to give love. And this is the last thing that Paul leaves with the church this morning. The call to give of that love of Christ. And yes, I am channeling the great wisdom of the CCM artist Michael W. Smith. It's not love until you give it away. Paul is talking about the idea of love. We have this beautiful conception of love in 1 Corinthians 13, but Paul does not leave love as this thing upon a pedestal. He calls the church of Corinth to inhabit that love, to exhibit that love, to manifest that love, because Jesus didn't shout down from heaven. God didn't bend down and say, I love you. He emptied himself of all that was rightly his and came in the form of a servant to live and die and rise for us. So Paul says that love in the church that is grounded in the love of the gospel, that will be the type of love that they are supposed to have, is to be made manifest, tangibly displayed. In verses 19 to 20, Paul includes in the letter the greetings of Aquila and Prisca and those with them in the church. Notice that he didn't just tell Stephanus and the others, hey, when you get back to Corinth, tell them that they said hi. As he writes with his own hand at the end to affirm that though he dictated most of it, he is the one authoring this. He also decides as the Spirit leads to include these specific greetings because he knows what it is to get a note from a friend especially in the days when you can't just go into any place and for 99 cents get some paper. This is a tangible token that brothers and sisters, 
Priscilla and Aquila, who had been in Corinth in the past and are now ministering in Ephesus, the people in their church whom they've never met, and all the other brothers and sisters greet them. And now, as this letter is read aloud to them, as the papyrus or whatever form they use is handed around, they will see a tangible sign of the loving greetings of their friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. More tangible than even seeing greetings written down and read aloud to them is Paul's exhortation that makes some of us uncomfortable or some of us a bit giggly. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We just had a new member of the church join. A new brother in Christ. I'm telling you, your job is to greet him with a holy kiss after the service. It doesn't have to be a kiss, though. Why? What is Paul getting at? Well, a kiss was the normal Semitic way of greeting family members. If you read the Old Testament, we see lots of occasions of kissing, and very few of them are romantic. You might immediately think of Song of Songs or some other context, but the first context of kissing is when Jacob goes before his father Isaac, and Isaac says, come and kiss me that I might discern who you are. When family members would come together, whether the immediate family or distant family members, the recognition and greeting would be of a kiss. And 1 Corinthians isn't the only encouragement to use such a kiss. Paul records this commandment in Romans and 1 Corinthians in First uh, Thessalonians, and Peter himself, in First Peter, gives a similar exhortation. Why? Because among the church, this familial greeting was to be extended to the spiritual family. That by welcoming each other, greeting one another with a kiss, you weren't just performing some ceremony, you were declaring, you are my family, I am yours. We are the beloved family of God. And so while we might show that same welcome instead with a handshake or a hug or something else in place of a kiss in our cultural context, no less real for us is the command to put on display that love. To kiss figuratively or literally with the holy kiss is to remind others of who they are to you and who you are to them. When we are tempted to say, you are an annoyance, you are an inconvenience, you are a burden, the kiss of peace, the holy kiss says, you are my sister, you are my brother, you are my family. Notice how helpful it is when we express the bond of love physically and tangibly. Even back in verse 17, Paul says what of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus? That though the Corinthians are absent, though there's a hole in his heart because Corinth, through all of their struggles and all of what's going on, is apart from Paul as he is in Ephesus, yet the physical presence, not just the message, not just the letter, but the tangible presence of these three men was cause for him to rejoice. We are called, brothers and sisters, to be grounded in the love of Christ in order to love, to be guided by love, and in that love to actually express it in tangible ways that can be received. Some of you have heard too much. Some of you haven't heard or don't remember. 
But the research topic for my Doctor of Ministry thesis was on the communion of saints. That is, how God's people are one body. And so I looked at people who had been disciplined, who had been disciplined by the church and yet stayed in the church because to do such a thing is so anti our culture, so countercultural. And to ask, in this day of expressive individualism, what is that church doing that they would receive this discipline and be restored and stay afterwards? And one of the things that I should have known, but just was so startling in all those interviews I conducted, was how much physical, tangible expressions of love mattered for the sense of belonging for these men and women. Before there was sin and an issue of discipline, during that discipline and after discipline, how they were invited to people's homes to share meals or invited to go to things as inane as soccer games, they were physically present. How those under discipline evaluated the value of a simple handwritten note or a pastor's presence with them in their hurt. One interviewee who had fallen into sin and was wrestling with being sinned against and was struggling with his mental health as a consequence of that recounted to me how meaningful it was as first responders were responding to a desperate situation with him to see in his parking, uh, in his driveway, a deacon whom he didn't talk to, but to see that man who came and drove across town to sit in his driveway and pray for him. Brothers and sisters, we have received the love of the Almighty God to save us from our sins, to live in that love. Why would we hide it? Why would we only speak of it? Why would we not manifest it? Culturally, we may not use kisses to show familial love to others, but then how are we doing it? With invitations to food and time together, with notes, with I'm sorry's said aloud instead of I'm assumed, with forgiveness confirmed with a handshake or a hug, with presence together at church, with claps on the shoulder, with the holding of babies, with the singing to one another. Love for our neighbors by knowing their names, by spending time with them, with expressing the love and the offer of the gospel. Are we giving the love of Christ? Paul ends his letter. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And we are used to people saying, I love you at the end of letters, signing love, so-and-so. But Paul is doing something profound here. Because who is Paul? Paul is a Jew by birth, by lineage, by training, speaking love to Gentiles. Paul was a Pharisee who wanted to see his people delivered from the oppression of the Romans and hoping that their judicious holding on to the strictures of the law would bring God pleasure so that he would free them from their Roman oppressors. He is a Christian writing to those who live and inhabit the empire whose representative put to death the promised Messiah. He is a shepherd writing to disobedient, divisive sheep. 
How does he do that in love? In Christ Jesus, who loved him when he was putting to death the followers of the crucified and risen Savior, who loved him enough to stop him on that road, to blind him, and so doing, open his eyes to his spiritual reality, and then to send him in that love as a servant to the king. Such love is only possible in Christ, as we are grounded in hope in that love for us, as we exemplify that love to one another, placing ourselves under examples of such love, and then giving such love away. Praise God for the love of Paul for the church. Praise God for the love of Christ to us. Let's pray. Lord, would all that we do be done in love for your glory and your honor. By the instruction of your word, with the help of your spirit, would all that we be doing be done in love for you, for each other, and for our world in need of hearing of your love. In Christ's name. Amen.